Today's gospel, which is also the sermon text, is on page 1057 in your pew, large print Bibles, John chapter 4, verses 43 to 54. After the two days, he departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine, and at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed, and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. And this is the gospel of the Lord. Good morning. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for your word. I personally thank you for the privilege to to preach your word and take the time throughout the week to pour time into studying it. Lord, may your word be spoken through me today. May you open our ears and our eyes to know you, to be drawn closer to you. Thank you for the faith that is represented in this passage, and may that faith, Lord, be ours. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, we're about to finish up chapter 4 of John, so we're, we're plugging away pretty well in our, in our series on the book of John. And today we're looking at a story that you just heard Melody read about this official with the dying son. So, but before that, I, I, was, I was drawn into this story that I heard before. It's about a mid, in the, in the mid-19th century, around the 1800s, there was a, a, a French tightrope walker. His name was Charles Blondin. He actually had more of a French name, but I think when he came to the U.S., he had blonde hair, and so he went by the name Blondin. It's creative. But, uh, so, but he was most notably known for his, crossing across, his crossings of the Niagara Falls. And he did that on a tightrope. In fact, throughout his career, he did this probably some 300 times. Um, but what's even more known about him was some of the feats he attempted, or some of the feats he actually performed while he was on this tightrope. For instance, the first time he, he, took, he went out to the center of the tightrope, 
And uh, so it was probably a 1,700-foot tightrope, and he went to the center. And at the Niagara Falls, there's, if you've ever been to Niagara Falls, there's Made of the Mist, which is a tourist boat. And he had them anchor underneath the center of the rope there. He went out, he sat on the rope, lowered a rope down to them, brought up a bottle of champagne, poured a glass of champagne, drank it, then went on his way to the rest of the, to the next uh, side. Another time, he took, uh, he put his 50-pound, 26-foot balancing pole, set it to the side, went out with a camera on his back. Now, 1850s, this is a big camera. It's one of those ones with a tripod and the thing you put over, you know, the drape you put over your head. Uh, he, he took it out, he balanced it on the wire, put the drape over his head and took a picture of the crowd on the other side. There's stories of him bringing a portable, however a portable stove was back then, but having a stove set up on that wire and cooking an egg, eating it and move. I mean, he, the, the stories are amazing. And, and I've seen them. I mean, this is in Smithsonian, so I, you know, I think they're pretty credible, I, I think. But it's believed that the first time he came, it's believed that over 25,000 people made the trip to either side of the falls and to fill up a railroad bridge that crossed the Niagara River to witness the works, the feats of Charles Blondin. Can you imagine hearing about a Frenchman coming over to this raging Niagara Falls and taking a tightrope, walking a tightrope over it without the technology today? I mean, Nick Walenda, who is a, a well-known contemporary tightrope artist, was, was training to do this, this very feat and for months, he was training at his home in Florida over water with helicopters, fans, uh, like, like uh, commercial fans, and fire hoses blowing water to try to recreate the churning and the unpredictable conditions of walking over Niagara Falls. Blondin had none of this. He just set up and did it. I bring up the Charles Blondin story because it contains a particular illustration of mature faith that we're going to see later on in the sermon. But it occurred during one of his crossings. There's one familiar story that probably a lot of you heard. I heard it a number of times from preachers. But there's one more that, that I found particularly interesting and related to this. But much of the Blondin story illustrates the life of faith that we're going to look at today. The three stages or three components of faith that see the reformers, when they were thinking about faith, what is faith and defining it, Martin Luther and the Reformers, they, they came up with, with three components of faith. The, the Latin words are notitia, essentia, and fuditia. But to put them in our language, it's knowledge, agreement, or assent, and then rely, uh, 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 total reliance. So all faith starts with this first stage, this first, this first component, knowledge. And it's this knowledge that we see this morning that was bringing people to Jesus. All faith, think about this, all faith starts with observing, hearing, or reading something that grabs your attention and demands your response. That response may not be a total su uh, uh, submission of your will, but it, it, it draws your response into where you want to know more. In today's passage, we're introduced to this government official with a dying son, and as Jesus' fame was growing, you see, Jesus was doing these works and these signs, and his fame was growing. The official was most likely hearing stories about the works that Jesus was doing. 
the works that he had done, the healings that he had done, perhaps he even heard about changing water into wine. What miraculous works? What kind of a man is this? This miracle worker, we've got to see him. But then his son became ill. And this drew the official in even more. But let's look at this transition text here, uh, verses 43 to 45. It's transitioning from where George preached about last week with Jesus in Samaria and the Samaritan woman telling about Jesus and the Samaritans coming to Jesus and now he's going into Galilee, his hometown. It says this, after the two days he departed for Galilee. And then you see this thing in, in this passage in parentheses. I believe it should be in your Bible, parentheses. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. So when he came to Galilee, his home region, by the way, the Galileans welcomed him. Well, that sounds confusing, doesn't it? I mean, if he's saying that, that a prophet has no honor in his hometown and he's going to his home area and he's being welcomed, that seems kind of confusing. But what John is, is demonstrating here. It makes sense when we see that although Jesus was welcomed in his hometown, he wasn't honored as the Messiah. He wasn't honored as the King of Kings. Think about where he just came from. He just came from Samaria. And did he do any great sign in Samaria? Well, he told the Samaritan woman about her life. And at that point, she was sold. And she went and told everybody about this man. Could he be the Christ? Could he be the Savior of the world? And soon all Samaria was coming to him and saying, no longer do we believe because of what she said. We believe because of what we've heard from you. They honored him as the Christ, as the Messiah. And although people loved his signs and wonders in Galilee, they didn't like his message. John is perhaps reminding us of what he said in the first chapter. In chapter 1, when he said, Jesus came to his own, but his own did not receive him. Jesus came to his hometown. Jesus came to the Jews, his own people, but his own people didn't receive him for who he really was. See, they didn't come to see a savior. They came to see a show. They were drawn in. Just like Blondin, just like he had tripped, they saw him as no different. Many of them saw him as just somebody who could do some wild things, and they wanted to come witness what he would do. So what we're going to see in this story is that it focuses on a person who seems to demonstrate these three stages or these three components of faith, this, this, this uh, uh, official that's, that's being focused on here in the story. And those, the way I'm going to list these are knowing, going, and sowing. So hopefully that'll, that'll connect with you here. We're going to see the first part of his faith as being a faith of knowing, knowing about Jesus. Secondly, going, going where Jesus tells him to go, agreeing to his words and going. And finally, sowing, sowing or planting himself in the life of Jesus, planting himself and sowing seeds of faith from there to his household. So knowing, so we see in verse 46, he says, so he, so Jesus came again to Cana in Galilee where he made the water into wine. In a Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. Now, Capernaum is about 15, 20 miles, roughly, from where Jesus was in Cana. And when this man heard, he heard about Jesus. He heard what he could possibly do. 
and had come from Judea to Galilee. His, his, his interest was piqued, but not only that, he thought, maybe this man could help me. And he made a beeline for Jesus in Cana. It says, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. One of my favorite commentators in the book of John is D.A. Carson, and he says this, he, he says the same, he says, the official in the verses before us sounds as if he's approaching Jesus out of the desperation of need only, but with little thought as to who Jesus is. This was not a man coming to the Savior. He was a man coming, wanting life for his son. But what, what, what this official heard was enough to make his first move toward Jesus. He heard and obviously thought it was worth the trip. What was the first bit of knowledge that brought you to Jesus? If you are a believer in Christ, what was the first bit of knowledge? What was the first step of your faith? For me, it was my brother sharing the gospel with me. At the time, it didn't mean a whole lot to me. But it piqued my interest enough. It made sense. Something made sense in what he was telling me to make me want to learn more. And at that point, I just remember trying to find out more, trying to learn more about Jesus. But my first step was just hearing about Jesus from my brother. What did this man know about Jesus? Did he know that he was the Messiah? Did he care? It appears appears that all he cared about was that there was a man coming to town who might be able to heal his son. So he came to see Jesus and ask him, and how does Jesus respond? Not what you would expect, huh? What's Jesus says? He, say, he says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Now what's interesting here is Jesus is saying, unless you, you there is plural. Some of your Bibles may notate that. Unless you people, he's, so after this man comes to him and asks him to heal his son, Jesus responds with, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will not believe. It's a little bit of a rebuke. It's a little bit of a pushback on why everybody is coming out to see him. Jesus seems to treat this royal official as, as a representative of the people, so to speak. Is there anything wrong with needing a sign in order to believe? Is there anything wrong with wanting to see something? I mean, Jesus did many signs that led people to believe. It says so in chapter 2. No, but there's a sense where the people were demanding signs, wanting something, wanting him to do things just for them. They wanted big and marvelous signs, wonders. They wanted absolute proof, perhaps. But they ignored the testimonies. They ignored the very teachings of Jesus. They ignored the word. They ignored the prophets, their their own scriptures. They ignored what they were prophesying about. And they wanted to see Jesus do a trick, to do something for them. Again, remember the response of the Samaritans. This, could this be the Son of God? Could this be the Savior of the world? Consider those who, think think about those who demand proof. You you know, you, you might talk to somebody who is an atheist. And think about, they they want proof that there is a God. They demand proof. What are they looking for? What are they looking for? Are they looking for a voice from heaven? Are they looking for uh, fire from the sky at your command? And even still, 
they may not believe. In fact, some would, many would say, I would say, they're ignoring all of the evidence that has been placed around us and looking for something else because they want proof. And yet, as Tim Keller points out, most of the things that we do in life, most of the things that the world does in life, you can't prove. Most of the big things, I should say. Think about NASA. Think about the things that NASA does, the rockets they send out, the, explore, the explorations they, they invest huge amounts of money in. Extraterrestrial life. Can you prove that? And yet, you're sending out rockets, you're, you're, you're spending billions of dollars on this, and yet, can you prove it? No, they're doing it by faith. They're doing it by faith. Can you prove that the woman or man that you married is the perfect man or woman? No. You're doing it by faith. We can't prove those things. Can you prove the investments that you made are going to be worth it? No, but yet we do it anyway. The list can go on. Think about the ways we approach life merely by faith and how those who, are, who don't believe in Christ do the same. Now, understand, this official has some authority and has some power. And this carpenter just kind of rebuked him. And yet, how does this official respond to Jesus? The official's words to Jesus in verse 49 say this, Sir, after Jesus rebukes him, or after Jesus pushes back with these words, he says this, Sir, come down before my child dies. Literally, come down before my little one dies. He's just wanting Jesus to come, and he approaches him with humility. He doesn't say, who are you to talk to me like this? He approaches Jesus with humility, saying, I need you to help me. He's desperate, and the testimony of Christ is enough. The knowledge is enough to trust Jesus' words from this point. So he comes, he's brought in by knowing, by knowing about Christ, and that brings him in, and he meets Christ and then Jesus says this in verse 50. Go. Your son lives. Go. Your son lives. That's the actual translation. Not your son will live. Your son lives. It's in the present tense. I don't know why it's translated like this, but it's, it's the three times this is said in this passage, it is your son lives. Presently. And what happens? The official believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went away. He went. His knowing led to his going. His knowing brought him to Jesus, and Jesus told him to go, and he went. Why did he go? Because he believed the word that Jesus spoke to him. He believed the word that Jesus spoke to him. That's the agreement. That's that essentius that, 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 the, that, that the church fathers were talking about. The agreement. The agreement that Jesus is who he says he is. Notice something else here. When he talks about signs and wonders, Jesus performed no sign for the people. He just told the man, go, your son lives. He only spoke his word to the official. The sign was actually taking place perhaps 15, 20 miles away. And the official would have to believe in order to go. 
and the people would have to hear about it in order to believe. <laughs> the official agreed that Jesus' words were true, and he obeyed. Imagine that walk back to Capernaum. Imagine what that was like to walk back some 15, 20 miles. You know, as we'll see in this passage, it's the next day when he learns about this. It's, it's hard to say exactly what time this was. Some say 1 o'clock, some say it could possibly be 7 o'clock, and so that would depend upon what time he would leave to go back. But wouldn't you be desperate to get back there? And some suggest that perhaps this man trusted the words of Jesus so much that perhaps he spent the night and then went back the next day. What kind of faith would that require? Many of you have heard this story about Blondin. The, the, the familiar story you might have heard about Charles Blondin, that tightrope walker, after walking across the Niagara Falls, he, he, one of his feats that he did was he pushed a wheelbarrow full of bricks across the Niagara Falls. Anybody hear the story? Me too, Dave. Uh, I've heard it a number of times. So um, pushing a wheelbarrow full of bricks, when he was done, Blondin asked the crowd if they believed he could put an actual person in the wheelbarrow. Yes, we believe that. We saw you do so many things. You're amazing. See how many believers he created from his works, from what he did. Those signs, they, they, just, they just like, you're amazing. Yes, I believe it. So he asked those believers, which one of you is willing to get in the wheelbarrow? No one did. No one did. Their knowledge was enough to get them there. Their knowledge was enough to get them to, to see Blondin and see his great works and his great feats, but it was not enough to ascend and to, to, to because, you know, not only did they have faith in his maybe 99% chance that he would make it with him, they also had a very solid faith in the law of gravity and knowing there's a chance that they could fall. But what you may not know about this story is that there was another one. There is one who agreed to go across the Niagara Falls with Blondin. I never heard about this, but it was about a person named Harold Colcord. This was Blondin's manager. It was the one who traveled with Blondin, so the one who knew Blondin very well. And he agreed to go across the Niagara Falls with Blondin, but he didn't agree to do it in a wheelbarrow. He agreed to get on Blondin's back and allow Blondin to walk the tightrope with Colcord on his back. Colcord knew Blondin well enough to take that step, to ascend to what he could do, to what Blondin could do. He was, he was in agreement that Blondin could do it, and he was willing to get on his back. Harold knew Blondin and deeply trusted his abilities and agreed to take that step, but... Was he ready for what he was about to hear from Blondin? Because there's more to that story. Not only was he willing to get on, was he willing to take the next step of the faith? The official made the step to believe Jesus' words and go home, but believing alone is not sufficient. Believing alone is not sufficient. Think about the words of James, 
James 2.19 says, you believe that God is one, you believe in God, you do well. That's great. But guess what? Even the demons believe that and shudder. Demons don't have any problem believing in God. They don't have any problem believing that perhaps that their destiny is already laid out by God. They believe that. But they also believe that and shudder. There's more to faith than just believing, just knowing and believing. True faith in Christ believes in the words of Christ, but then sees nowhere else to go but to the source of the eternal life and then sow our own lives in him to plant our lives in him, surrendering and joining ourselves to him. And so we see this with the official. Verse 51, as he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour he began to get better, and they said, yesterday, see, it was the next day, yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him, and the, fa and the father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son lives. And he himself believed. The official, he himself, now didn't it already say he believed? Well, it said he believed the words of Jesus. But now, he truly believes in who Jesus is. And it says, he himself believed in all his household. And it points out that this is the second son Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. That he himself believed in all his household. His servants, his family, all who lived under his household believed because now not only did he sow himself into Jesus, but he sowed the seeds of faith to his whole household and led them to believe in the Savior, the Savior of the world, the giver of life. These are words of true belief in the Savior. What John is displaying here is that this official, who was probably also a Gentile, a non-Jew, he came to believe in Christ by believing his word, not by having some magic trick done before him, not by having to see some sign, but by believing the word that Jesus spoke to him and going and seeing. He planted himself in Christ and sowed the seeds of faith among his household. Remember, he came to know Christ first, which led him to go where Christ told him. Then he submitted himself completely and sowed himself and planted himself completely in Christ. And as all signs that Jesus did were pointing to something, when he restored life to his son, he was, he was pointing, this sign was pointing to the fact that Jesus is the ultimate giver of life, to new life, to eternal life. That he is the giver of life. This was just not to restore this son's life because this son eventually died. He raised Lazarus and Lazarus eventually died. It was a sign to point to who he is, who he was, and who he always will be. The giver of life, the source of eternal life. What does sowing or planting ourselves in Christ by faith look like to someone like you or like me? Well, Paul talks about this. Paul talks about his life in Christ and what it looks like to be in Christ. He says this in, in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, 
but it's Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's what this official came to believe. And this official could now say, it's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. Jesus called this, this, this planting, this sowing of ourselves into him as abiding. We see this in chapter 15 when he talks about abide in me and, and, and I'll abide in you. When he compares the, the, the grapes, the vine and the branches, and how important it is how the grapes can produce nothing unless they are grafted into the vine, unless they are a part of that vine. They could do nothing without him. So I told you about this, this story with Blondin that demonstrated this kind of faith in his context. I told you about Harry Colcord, who, who agreed to ride on Blondin's back across the Niagara Falls. By the way, let me just say that, that, that when this, this rope was put up, they didn't have guide wires throughout the whole rope. When this rope was out in the middle, if, if, the, if the winds were churning, that rope was swinging. It was not as steady as maybe some of the ropes are too, as if that's safe. But I mean, it just, you know, <laughs> just saying it was even worse. <laughs> Colcor gets on Blondin's back. And these are the words that were recorded that Blondin said to Colcord. Before crossing the falls, Blondin gave his manager the following instructions. Look up, Harry. You are no longer Colcord. You are Blondin. Until I clear this place, be a part of me. Mind, body, and soul. If I sway, sway with me. Do not attempt to do any balancing yourself. If you do, we'll both go to our death. How do you try to balance yourself when Christ is swaying you in an uncomfortable place? Maybe the question is, how are you sowing yourself in Christ? How is your faith this morning in Christ? How is your faith in Christ? Can you say with Paul, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live, in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Can you say that this morning? Do you want to say that this morning? Do you long to say that? The beautiful thing about our faith is that we're all in a stage of growth. We're all in a stage of being planted and the faith is being sown in us. That's why we're here together to worship together, to love one another, to care for one another. May part of our vision of grace and peace be to grow together that we may teach and preach and live this faith. That we can all say as a church, that we can all join with one another with one voice and say that we now live. We live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. Would you pray that with me? 
and pray as we go on from here that the Lord would grow our faith and graft us into him and that we may encourage one another, pray for one another, and, and, and love one another into a deeper grafting in Christ. Pray with me. Jesus, we thank you that you are the source of life, that not one person here has a life that is worthy of eternal life, except in you. Thank you that you won the victory, that you paid it all, and you invite us to be a part of you, that you invite us to have your life in us, in us and you. Lord, help us to sway when you sway and not try to balance ourselves. But oh, that we may sway with you no matter which way you are swaying. And may you make us one with you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.